Another month of the OHL season behind us. World Junior invites going out. Players will be leaving their teams. The Christmas break is coming when all eyes end up on junior hockey. Hey, Canada, you can find us the rest of the season too. But nonetheless, things get really interesting quickly after Christmas. It's trade deadline time. And oh boy, do things get intriguing in the Ontario Hockey League. Mike Farwell. Dan Mahar, another episode of the OHL podcast. Thank you very much for stopping by. With all of that said, looking back on the month that was, Dan Mahar, you pointed out and asked the question if we need some sort of hockey summit in the <laughs> Forest City of London, because what is going on with the juggernaut nights? The juggernauts? have lost five of their past seven. They have allowed 38 goals in those seven games, a 5.42 goals against average, and a gulp, 840 save percentage over their past seven. What gives in green? Yeah, you know, it's not what you're used to seeing. I can't imagine uh, Dale and his crew are terribly happy. That last uh, stat you mentioned is the most concerning, the 38 goals. Um, then the thing that leaps off the page at you is this team's giving up goals at an alarming pace. I think when they acquired Michael Simpson at the start of the year, this certainly wasn't what they had in mind. And not that completely in blame, blaming Michael Simpson, his numbers are still respectable for the season, and it's never all on the goalie. But you look at that that defensive crew. They've got some some good pieces there with Edward and George and Oliver Bonk and, and of course, Sam Dickinson. They've got a good crew back there. So it makes you wonder what's happening. Is, is there not quite the commitment to team defense that we're used to seeing from the London Knights? Not the same discipline on that neutral zone trap? couple couple... Uh, we, we heard about how goal scoring was might be their issue this year. Um, did the players hear that and are starting to sell out a bit for offense and forgetting what their bread and butter is? Uh, a few theories at play here. I just know in the, in the pieces I've watched of the London Knights, it seems a little bit easier to get shots through at this point. The, the D seem to be backing in a little further, giving some looks. And yeah, they're just also not quite getting the same uh, saves they were getting uh, previously so yeah a little bit concerning it's it you know we're into december it's not like it's panic time in london by any stretch we know they'll turn it around but you're not used to seeing that many goals go in their net yeah and you've hit the highlights there we are of course looking at a seven game sample size but when you see these sorts of things happening especially to a team like london you do raise a spocky and eyebrow right they allowed nine versus sudbury they allow seven versus uh, Saginaw. I mean, these are some big numbers and, and the London Knights end up on the wrong end of lopsided scores. And the thing that stands out to me, and as I said, you hit the highlights, but this has always been a team and you and I have talked about this, Dan, even when you go back to the uh, Max Domi and, and Mitch Marner and, you know, take your pick days of high flying offensively skilled players on the London Knights, they always had a defense first philosophy. And if they had a lead in the third period, you can bet that Dale Hunter had them shutting things down. Just they are a team that has always been opportunistic. They'll play a really controlled, structured style of play. And when you make a mistake, they pounce. Coming into this season, you nailed it. Everybody looked at the back end and thought, okay. And then especially you had Michael Simpson. It's going to be really tough. You're going to have to earn your goals against London Knights. But 
how are they going to score them? And here we are looking again at 38 goals against in the past seven games. Again, small sample size, but to kind of tie into something we talked about last week on this podcast, when it comes to parity in the league, you drop five of seven games and all of a sudden you find yourself in third place in the division because the surging Guelph storm leapfrog you, you drop to fifth in the conference, the London Knights fifth in the conference behind Kitchener, Sault Ste. Marie, Saginaw, and Guelph. Do we expect it to stay this way? No, but it does make one ask a question or two, and I'm sure they're asking the questions in London too. Has anybody checked on Ryan Payette? That's the, I I have to, you know what? I'm going to do that. It's the holiday season. I will check personally on Payette, but uh, it's interesting. And, you know, maybe it's just anybody's hockey league this year. I don't know. I can't figure it out. Yeah, you know, it, it just raises, uh, like like you just said, no one's terribly worried about the London Knights long-term. They'll get it turned around. They always do. Uh, they've got shrewd management and coaching. But I think it, it raises a few interesting questions now. You know, you get into December and everyone starts asking, who's a buyer, who's a seller? And everyone always just assumes London's a buyer. They bought Michael Simpson uh, to start the year. And they think, well, there's a bit of a go-for-it year maybe. Dale Hunter and Mark Hunter in the past have have proven that they have the guts to sell in years when they know it's not quite there and bolster up for We'll call it reload. <laughs> so I'm not saying they're going to be sellers. I'm not, I'm not saying that yet. It's, it's premature. They're obviously still in the mix, but knowing the way the hunters think and seeing the composition of their team, do they maybe say, let's see what the offers are for Oliver Bonk this year, knowing he's unlikely to be back next year. Uh, asking some questions like that because a little bit of a reload here and you come back next year with a lot of those players back uh presumably uh, assuming the Leafs don't change their plans they'll have Easton Cowan again they'll have obviously Sam Dickinson after his draft they'll have a lot of pieces going into next year so if you bolster that it's it's the type of thinking you start to ask yourself are the hunters at least considering and you don't panic over a little bit of a stretch like this obviously I'm just saying that they've been shrewd in the past so you're you're going to start to ask what are they doing this year are they buying or selling Shrewd for sure. And I would say also rather steady in this regard. And by that, I mean, you don't often, often see the London Knights swing for the fences in either direction. So if they're selling, it's not like a fire sale, so to speak. And if they're buying, it's not a nine draft pick exchange for a Pavel Minchikov type player, right? So it's always controlled, shall we say, even when the trade deadline is right around the corner. Yeah, for sure. We're not expecting anything dramatic out of them either way. I, I just think it's fair to assume that they're going to assess the market both ways. And if they get the right offer either way, they're probably going to jump on it. So uh, let's not make assumptions about the Knights going all in this year um, based on what we're seeing. I, I, I know you look at tips or what they've done so far. They've added some physicality to that lineup. Uh, there's There's definitely some... Some of that heat up front, uh, is it a question of maybe too much? These guys can't skate in the league right now. Uh, just a little bit too much on that side. Do they make tweaks and adjustments to kind of get their skating legs back? Who knows? But uh, I think there's a few question marks in London right now that I'm sure are going to get answered in the next few weeks. All right. As I mentioned when we started this episode, we have flipped the calendar. We're into a new month. A team that I wanted to mention last week and totally forgot and they deserved to be mentioned and of course now i'm going to mention them and they go and lose their first two games of december 
Thanks a lot, Brantford Bulldogs. You're off the Christmas card list. I'm cutting them down at week by week here. I think I'm down to 17 cards to send out, but the Bulldogs should be acknowledged for the November that they had going eight, two, two, and one through the month of November. And overall, even with the losses, one of them an extra time this weekend, they've got points in 12 of their past 15 games, Dan. And much like London kind of comes back to the pack a little bit and finds itself mid-pack in the West, the Brantford Bulldogs, on the strength of that strong November, find their themselves climbing up those Eastern Conference standings. And, and sort of right now, I would say, find themselves pretty much where you and I thought they would be when this season began and we offered up our prognostications. Yeah, I think when I looked at both the East and Western Conference, my my dark horses in both conferences as I had them pegged around fifth in the conference were Brantford and Erie in the West. And I think both teams are kind of starting to show a little bit of why we did that. Um, Brantford is a bit of a funny team. They've, they don't necessarily have that high-end potency on paper that you say, oh yeah, this team's a contender. But there's not a lot of weak spots either. You go down that lineup and they play kind of a heavy game. Uh, when they're in unison, they're a really tough team to play. They're going to be a pain in the butt to play. And I think the the term I've always used is that as the season goes on, they're going to get harder and harder to play against because they have that size and they have that grind. And other teams are going to start to feel the pinch over the, over time that Brantford might not. Having said that, as we've seen in the last two games, sometimes teams like that that maybe don't quite have that potency, when they get a little disjointed in their systems, get a little further apart on the ice – Things go off the rails a little bit here and there, a couple games here and there where they don't score enough, a couple games here and there where they're not connecting on passes. They'll sort that out, but I think in the weight of time, that's a team that's going to be in the mix just based on that that heavy game they play and how hard they are to play against. Interesting thoughts around the heavy game that the Bulldogs play because I was just today talking to Rob Wilson, the head coach in Peterborough, of course, and we talked about last year's squad and how they're doing it again this year when it's supposed to be a rebuild. But in talking about last year's squad, Rob Wilson used that exact terminology. Even, you know, you look at the skill that they added, right, with Owen Beck and Brennan Othman, et cetera, Hayes. But these guys all, Wilson said, played a heavy game. And that's what helped them as the playoffs wore on. The deeper you go, the more resilient are those heavy players that play that heavy game. You're also right, though, when you look up and down the Bulldogs lineup, are you going to have anybody that really leaps out to you? Not at this point, but they're all guys that are just in the right places, I think, in the right roles, and they're producing there. I'm going to give a shout out again to Luca Testa. I did this earlier. He was one of my prospects of the week. And of course, he's back on the shelf, which is really concerning. But through the month of November, in the seven games that he played, he had five goals and two assists through those seven games. And then you look throughout that forward crew, you've got Florian Jackye, who picked up 10 points, seven goals and three assists in November. You've got Merrick Van Acker, who picked up five goals and nine assists for 14 points in the month. I'm not foreshadowing my prospect of the week, but Van Acker deserves some consideration. He's a B prospect, according to Central Scouting. And then my boy, Nick Lardis, who you know I loved last year, about 18 points in the month of November through those 11 games with 10 goals and eight assists. So you're getting contributions like that throughout the Bulldogs lineup. And I think that's a big reason why you have a month where you go eight, two, two, and one. Yeah. And I mean, you, you, you 
reference Ben Acker. I think when you watch that team play, there's a guy that gets in hard on the four check, gets the front of the net. He had the dimension every shift he's on there. Uh, you can throw in a couple others too. Cole Brown's had a, had that effect on the forward line a bit at times. And and how about the newfound top pairing where you have Tomas Homer got showed up in a trade and now he's playing with his Ottawa center cohort, Durian Donovan. And those those two are playing like a legitimate top pairing in this league now, which is something that maybe the Bulldogs lacked a bit coming into the season. Um, so it's just uh, opportunity presents itself to a player and he kind of steps into a role and embraces it with which Hamara did. But uh, you can see how that team has some pieces. And again, they're, they're not going to be an easy out no matter who who comes up against them in the playoffs. And, you know, you make me think when you talk about that deal for Hamara, obviously there were conditions that he wanted out of Kitchener. He wanted the chance to get power play time, which he's getting in Brantford. There's obviously the Ottawa connection. You've referenced it. But organizationally, Dan, now I'm thinking back to the 2018 run when they're still in Hamilton, the 2022 run, of course, where they go all the way, win the championship, go to the Memorial Cup. And here they are in the midst of the rebuild. Matt Turek's making these nice little moves to complement the existing roster. The players are performing in the roles that they're being given. Organizationally, this is a a well-run junior hockey club over the past six, seven years. Yeah, well, look no further than the uh, trade last year that brought them Nick Lardis, right? Like, what what a phenomenal trade that was. I mean, you have two aging assets in junior hockey terms that is these old 19 and 20 year olds right that that were good players in the league but obviously not going to be there for any kind of glory in in Hamilton to parlay them into what they did with Nick Lardis plus 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 like you said just good management and that's the type of thing that keeps teams in the hunt year over year and you you can bet when you see a, a GM that can make a move like that you know you're in good hands and and interested to see what he does with with the Bulldogs this year. We got an email from Vince who writes to OHL podcast at rogers.com. Hey guys, hope all is well, Thought I would pass along this article. It refers to the short bench for the Niagara ice dogs, a problem they've had for a few games. Now, is this common across the league or is this just another case of the ice dogs being the ice dogs? It's very hard to understand why this is happening. So regularly the past while another miserable season continues vince in saint Catharines. vince appreciate the email please be like vince send us an email anytime ohl podcast at rogers.com i think i've made clear how i feel about organizationally the niagara ice dogs it hasn't been great for the past couple of years for all of the reasons we've already outlined but you know what i'm not going to kick this dog while it's down The Ice Dogs have been playing with a short bench. I think everybody around the league knows that. And it's just been through a perfect storm of injuries and illness. But I'll tell you what, I got a firsthand viewing of the Niagara Ice Dogs this past weekend. I just mentioned earlier, moments ago, talking with Rob Wilson, the head coach of the Peterborough Peets today. Those two teams, Dan, my firsthand viewing of Niagara means they were in Kitchener. The Peterborough Peets are the two teams that you and I, and I think anybody watching Ontario Hockey League games this year have identified as the biggest surprises, really impressive considering where they're at in their junior hockey cycle. And the Ice Dogs went out and beat them both this weekend. Beat them both. They come into Kitchener with 10 forwards and beat the Rangers. They go back home. They take on the Peets on a Sunday afternoon and they beat the Peterborough Peets. The one thing 
that you have to hand to this team is how hard they're working. That, yeah, absolutely, Mike. But that, and I would add in, you you brought that word heavy earlier. I, when they came into Kitchener with a short bench, they played a heavy game. And, and I think they showed the league a bit of a blueprint to play those surprising Rangers who lacked a bit of that heaviness. And they were hitting everything that moved. They were physical. They were, they were just aggressive despite a short bench, which is not easy to do when you have a short bench. So, uh, yeah, kudos to the Niagara Ice Dogs for for that with a short bench. And just and just to quick quickly touch on Vince's email. Thanks for the email, Vince. Like, yeah, I'm I'm with you, Mike. I'm not going to totally throw them under the bus for this. I think when it comes to the number of players available to you, I think a lot of fans think in the terms of the NHL, where you know you have the NHL team and you can call up guys at at will and you can sign guys or pick guys off wa- waivers as needed. Uh, the OHL's Got, you've got a very finite number of cards, 27, I believe it is, for the season. You've got a couple B cards with these kids that can come up for a maximum of 10 games. Once the training camp breaks, almost all these kids get signed to cards somewhere, and that's who their rights belong to. It's not There's not a pool of players sitting there that you can just call up on a whim when you're a little bit short. And teams do get in these situations from time to time. I can't remember an OHL season ever, Mike, that's gone by where there wasn't one or two teams who had a week or two where they played with a short bench uh, uh, in some fashion. So it's not necessary. I know it looks bad when it's a franchise that's as much turmoil as Niagara, but it's, it's not that simple with the OHL. You can't just call up, uh, you know, two or three guys from the junior B squad and say you're, you're on the roster this week. It's not quite that easy. So I'll give them a pass on this one too, Mike. That's a great point. And even on Sunday, when they wrapped up the weekend with that win over Peterborough, they had Connor Federko, the defenseman, playing up front, and we could go on and on. These are the things you have to do when you're in this situation. I just want to finish on this point when it comes to the Ice Dogs. Again, I'm not here to defend how the team has been managed over the past couple of years. And you can, I think, look at what I'm about to share with you in a couple of ways. One is you could look at it as saying, despite the short bench, despite perhaps not having as much talent on paper as other teams, this team in Niagara is managing to stay in games or they lack the finish that's necessary to be successful. Take it however you want to take it. Here's your reality. 18, 18 of Niagara's 26 games played so far this season, including both on the weekend have been one or two goal games. That's about 70% of the games that you've played one or two goal games and you break it down a little bit further take out the two goal games 13 of the 26 so half the games have been one goal games and once again they beat both kitchener and peterborough this weekend talk about david slaying a couple of goliath so take it for what it's worth but 18 of your 26 games being two or one goal games you're in them (laughs) at the very least you're in them and that's what you want as a coach, right? When you have a little bit of a thinner roster, they do lack offensive potency. Um, but I think Mike, we'd also be remiss to talk about them slaying a dragon like that and not give a shout out to Marcus Vandenberg, who, you know, threw up 45 saves in that game. It was just brilliant. So when you throw in amazing goaltending, you can do anything in any league really. Uh, and I think the players are buying in knowing that they're going to get the saves, not step one in trying to get somewhere with the franchise. So yeah, good good on the Ice Dogs for like you said that stat you just gave 18 of the games when you're when you're in that many games you're making it worthwhile for the fans to come watch and that's that's job number 1. 
Okay, uh, so we've talked about Brantford, we've talked about Niagara. I know the Kingston Frontenacs have caught your eye of late. Yeah, just a quick, uh, quick note there, Mike, because I, th I, I think in the last couple years, sometimes these teams go on these Easter road swings. You know, you tend to get Peterborough, then you get Kingston, then you get Ottawa, and and no, no offense to the Kingston Frontenacs, but for a couple years, teams have looked at that as the soft touch in the middle, right? I, mean, I get that one. We're probably not going to get the Ottawa one. We got to get that one. Maybe we'll get Peterborough and split the road trip and see what we do. Uh, I just want to give a shout out to Kingston. They've been hanging in there for a while now. They've been uh, giving a, a good fight. We just talked about the Ice Dogs doing it. They're giving a fight most nights. And they've been the spoiler on some of these good Eastern road swings for a few teams. We saw Windsor come in hot late. Uh, that road trip beat Peterborough and Ottawa. They lost in Kingston. Flint was hot coming in. They lost in Kingston. So Kingston is not a soft touch right now. They kind of rounded out, uh, I think, 5-4-1 in their last 10. Look, looks to me, from what I'm seeing there, that they're rounding into form and, and might have a chance at moving up a notch or two in those standings. So a bit of a forgotten team in some ways early in the year, um, but don't sleep on Kingston yet. I'm glad you mentioned Windsor in that trip. That's the first team I was thinking of, and we should acknowledge how they seem to have turned things around. No disrespect to Jared Smith. I still think it's pretty rotten what happened to him. I mean, you spent 13 years with an organization and 20 or so games into the season, you're first as a head coach, out you go. But there's no doubt that the Spitfires have responded to the coaching change with Casey Torrens in there now. But great point on Kingston. And I would just hope, I haven't been yet this year, but historically, no matter how good the team is, they don't draw all that well so you're talking about these teams going on that eastern swing through kingston those would be home games obviously i hope somebody's noticing and catching on because it's a great market i mean my goodness it's a terrific city and they've got a great barn too leon center is a beautiful facility for junior hockey but usually you can go there and have your pick of sections at games so hopefully Fans are taking notice, but an excellent acknowledgement of a team that also seems to be finding a bit of an identity, particularly on home ice. So we're spending a lot of time here in the Eastern Conference, and, and that just leads me to, I think, what is the obvious question? Has anybody seen the Sudbury Wolves? Anyone? Like Bueller? Have you seen the... Look, I don't want to whiz on anybody. That's not my intention here. And, and I love me some Nickel City. But the preseason darlings in the East, you would think, and, and we already talked about it in this episode, with things kind of being wide open. You know, you have a little stumble if you're London in the West and all of a sudden you're in fifth place. Brantford goes on a nice little run in November and climbs the Eastern Conference standings. If you're the team that I think itself expects to be the contender or the team that the others are chasing this year, where are you? Sudbury Wolves, a rather pedestrian 5-5-1 five, five, in November, although they did get three or four points this past weekend. But I don't know. I'm, I guess what I'm asking is, or expecting, I've, I've been waiting for a team to jump up and grab the East and start running away with it. And I thought that team would be the Wolves. Hook them up to a dog sled. I don't know. I can't, I don't see it happening yet. Yeah, and I think you and I both acknowledged the predictions, Mike, where we said, you know, the the one piece that wasn't making us full believers in Sudbury is when's the last time they did it? They got over that hump. And being good in this league is challenging, but but lots of teams manage to do it. Being great in this league is tough, and only a few teams manage to do that repeatedly. And I think 
with Sudbury, until we see that consistently, and by that I mean in the playoffs, we're going to struggle to believe it. And, you know, I I think the London Knights saw plenty of, of the Sudbury Wolves when they visited. But I, the reason I bring that game up is not not to dig at the, at the London Knights. It's to suggest that as a player or a coach, I, I always hated those blowout games of being on the right side of them because I found they almost always led to kind of bad habits, some indifference going forward, some just at your expectations where like you're entitled to, to some goals, to some wins, and maybe you don't have, you aren't doing all the right things going forward. And I'm not suggesting that that one nine, two win turned Sudbury and lazy or, or made the next, but it, but it does subconsciously play on you when you have those games. So, I mean, I'll give me a four, two win any day over a nine, two win. And I know that sounds silly, but those stat finding games don't do wonders for you over the next couple of weeks. And I think maybe, maybe that's a bit at play as well. Yeah, one of those tough London losses on that uh, dropping five of seven up in Sudbury where they lose 9-2. And then, of course, the next night they go out and win 9-3 because junior hockey. That's just how things yeah. work. I, I, I'm curious more than anything what Rob Papineau is going to do up in Sudbury now. I mean, it it is the Wolves' year. The stars are aligning, whether it's happening on the ice or not. I think, and and I get the sense from people I'm talking to up that way, that there's a sense of duty to the fan base. So when the stars are aligning and your players are at the right age and it's your turn in the cycle and, and still nobody has truly asserted themselves in the East, I think it's going to be a busy month. I, I, I don't, I don't know that you have any other choice in Sudbury this year. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, when I look at them and I see, you know, the moves that were made earlier for veteran defensemen, they were lucky to get Toure back. So that's that. That was great. But you look up front, you go, yeah, Dvorsky, uh, Delix, who's going to be back next year for sure? <laughs> Doesn't look great, right? So this is this is very clearly, I mean, not every GM has the luxury of saying, yeah, it's 100% a year I should go for it or not. The Sudbury Wolves have that luxury. So you're right. Rob Papineau kind of has his destiny set for him. So I can't imagine he stands pat has some assets to move. We'll see. But I think it's very clearly, yeah, it's it's going to be additions there. With the holidays upon us, it is that great time in the Ontario Hockey League schedule where teams play their teddy bear games. Shout out, I think we might have already given one, but we'll give them another one to Jack Ivan Kovic with his shutout of the Erie Otters on their teddy bear night. A 48-save performance for the kids first, and it won't be his last in this league. I'm not trying to whiz on Erie either. It happens, but that was the, the Otters' teddy bear game. I was at the teddy bear game in Sarnia just this past weekend, the Rangers playing the Sting, and I'll tell you what, I... <laughs> It was so confusing because what happened if you missed it, and I don't think many people that are following the league have missed this, but long story short, the, there was some premature celebration at Progressive Auto Sales Arena, and the Bears came raining down even though the puck was nowhere near going in the net. Yeah, you know, it's it, so... If I'm Tristan Malbuff, who is the Kitchen Rangers goalie uh, that made a save on the play in question, I'm loving that. I'm like the Bears raining down on me. I'm saying, you know what? Like that's how good this save was. Everyone in the building says, "No, that's it. You didn't stop that." Well, look what I got. <laughs> so yeah, I think I think the guy who enjoyed that probably the most was Tristan Malbuff. Uh, everyone else was 
triggered, we'll say, by a, a, the red light going on. So that maybe some fans have an excuse there. But it is a bizarre day on Teddy Bear Land when you see an announcement after they actually do score their first goal saying, please do not throw your teddy bears. You already had your, you did that. You did that. <laughs> it's just one of those one of those bizarre things, Mike. I don't blame the fans one bit. They were ready. They got the red light. They started throwing bears. And look, the bears were going to come down at some point, even in those games where a team is shut out, they make an announcement in the arena at some point to say, go ahead and throw your bears. What was really weird for me was I was on the broadcast and this whole thing was an anticipation play, if you will. The game of hockey is a fast game. I don't need to tell anybody that, but Tristan Malbuth made a glorious save. Like it was the the kind of save you describe as robbery or a 10 bell save or take your pick. And I was so sure of it, but everything happened so quickly. And look, Andrew LeBlanc, dead to rights, should have scored. It was that good a save. The goal judge just anticipated, oh, pass is coming right there at the side of the goal. Bang, it's in. And he hit. And, and so I stopped mid-sentence. Poor Malbuth didn't even get, at least on my little radio broadcast, the credit he deserved for the magnificence of the save. But that red light went on, and that triggered everything. The goal horn sounding, the bears coming down etc. At one point, Malbuff even skated out to the top of the crease and held his hand in the air, his trapper hand, where he had the puck the whole time. And it was it was never even close to being in the net. It was just the anticipation. The play like that, the bang-bang that was coming, it was obviously going to be a goal, right? Wrong. And the kick in the ass in all of it, Dan, is that yes, Sarnia would score later that same period, but they scored with six seconds left in the period which means we could have avoided the whole delay and they just could have picked things up at intermission but anyway they got their teddy bears onto the ice in sarnia yeah and i think the two the two little storylines there that so so when vilmanis does score the actual what should have been the teddy bear goal he's a little bit deprived of what should have been a good memory for him so there's a little bit of a side note there but uh for malbuff i think you, you talk about stories you're gonna be able to tell your children yeah Ivan Kovic getting a shutout, that's great. But we've seen a few shutouts in teddy bear games. So that's a great story. You, you, you know, as a goalie, 20 years later, telling your kids, hey, I shut a team out on their teddy bear night. That's cool, but you're in some company there. Tristan Malbuff's the only one I know of that can say, hey, the teddy bears rained down when I made a glove save, guys. That's never happened before. The save was so good, I fooled 4,000 fans. So, <laughs> so was, yeah, just kind of a fun story. It was. And uh, you got to have some fun in this game from time to time. Okay. Uh, as we move along with this episode of the OHL podcast, you know, we're searching for a new commissioner, right? We don't want to, well, some people want to just get David Branch out of the office, but no, he has announced his retirement at the end of this season, his 45th. How is that search going? And what would we like to see in the office of the new commissioner? Plus, Something that both Dan and I are very sick of seeing. I thought we had learned our lesson in this regard. Apparently we haven't. And our prospects of the week. All of that still to come on this episode of the OHL Podcast. one would expect for a 
role like this, there's a search committee that's been put together. The search committee has put out the feelers to candidates to get some screening done. It's rather preliminary at this point. I wouldn't call it in any way a, a formal interview of any kind, but they are beginning, the search committee is, this screening process. And the board will be receiving the recommended names through this search committee's screening process early in the new year. And then we'll kind of get into the meat and potatoes of the interviews and who's bringing what to the table. And ultimately, of course, that decision as to who it will be that's replacing David Branch in the OHL commissioner's office. When you think ahead to that role post David Branch, Dan, what do you think of from the commissioner? What would you like to see maybe the most important characteristic that the new commissioner brings? For me, it would be openness in general, Mike. More communication with the public, more communication with the teams, uh, more guidelines around your thinking, your procedures, your protocols. I know you can't be a totally open book when you when you rule on these things because there are components of it that need to stay behind closed doors. But for the most part, just more openness. And I think, not to throw Ted Baker under the bus here, but since his departure, I felt like there's been a little more openness on the disciplinary side. Um, some of those suspension rulings are coming out a little quicker. Uh, there's actually been some sober second thought there and, and overturning some calls on the ice with explanations. It feels to me like that those doors are opening a little. And as fans or consumers of the game, that just helps your sport. When you feel like you have that understanding and you're and you're getting that information from the league and you're not feeling frustrated or shut out. So for me and the new commissioner, that would be the number one characteristic I'd look for, Mike, is someone that's just a little more open with the public, respects the fans enough to share with them the thinking and the logic and, and some of the planning as much as they can. It's an interesting point for sure. And what you're talking about with what you've noticed from the offices since Ted Baker's departure is a lot of credit to Barkley Branch, who's clearly embraced the role and maybe takes a more modernized or progressive approach to it. I've liked it too. And I will say that in the same breath that I also say, I hope that the league doesn't go in that direction. That direction being, and the new commissioner of the Ontario Hockey League replacing David Branch is his son, Barkley Branch. Not to pick on Barkley or determine that he's not up to or worthy of the job, because I think he's showing his mettle here with the role that he's playing. I just don't think the optics are good at all. We shall see. I'm looking at, at a slightly different aspect of the new commissioner's office, and I've made this clear before. I'm, I'm a David Branch fan. I know that's not the most popular opinion, but I, I am. But we also have to recognize that David Branch has been old for a while. Like he's into his 70s now. And he, he's got a great handle on ensuring player safety and, and the business side of the game for sure. But what I'm looking for in the next commissioner is maybe a refreshed or renewed or brand new approach to the way the game is marketed. It's a great product, and and I'm looking at this with a bit of a bias through the broadcast lens, but look, when people want to watch games out of market or they want to keep up with their favorite team when they're not at the rink, you know, using the OHL Action Pack or whatever it happens to be, 
I think there's a lot of room to improve the quality of what's being put out. And, and when you do that, and I'm not talking about, you know, investing tons of money. I understand the, the economics of the game and the economics connected to the people who are working on the broadcasts today. But I think there's a way to even take what you have and enhance it just that little bit. So the product looks more like the caliber that we're seeing on the ice. Cause it's, Make it look more big league. I think there are opportunities there. And I really think the league has opportunity to grow what it has started doing better on the digital side when it comes to social media, et cetera. I would love to see a new commissioner come in with that kind of a mindset, at least as part of her or his role. No, that's a, that's a great point, Mike, because I was thinking about some of the procedural stuff, but you're talking about the business side and the product that we offer. And that's a great point. Cause I think that that probably is number one on the search committee's minds too. And we just saw the WHL announce a new commissioner who had strong corporate and business ties. And I, I would have to think that that's partly what their thought process is there as well is how do we market ourselves better? How do we, how do we reach out to a wider audience and draw in some more sponsors and fans? So I'm guessing that, I'm not sitting in on those interviews, Mike, but I'm guessing that would be a key component of that. And to do so, might have to broaden the team a little bit and broaden the scope of of the league offices, which have been historically pretty tight and pretty small under Dave Branch. And and you know, there's pros and cons to doing that. But uh, but I'm with you in terms of a new dawn, new vision. I'm not sure about the optics. So yeah, having another branch come in, um, I think there's a lot of opportunity here on both sides of that. You read my mind when it comes to the office itself and how many people are within it. And maybe that needs to be broadened just a little bit. And you said sponsors, and I don't mean to make it all about the business, but we know that this is a business. And if those sponsors are attaching themselves to something that has some cachet, has some glitz and glamor associated with it, I think that's a very good thing for the future of the league. So we'll see, like you said, they're going to have some names to the board early in the new year. And we'll, uh, we'll see where it goes from there, but, we promise to keep you updated here on the podcast as well. All right. One other thing that happened this weekend, and I texted you when it did, and I, I recognize even in saying this, Dan, uh, and you know it as well as I do, it's, it's a bit of a tired old argument, but if we're not going to stop doing it, then maybe we'll just keep having the tired old argument. And it comes from a game that I was in the building for, Sarnia, Kitchener, Sunday in Sarnia, Simon Motu, Rangers defenseman, laid one of the best open ice body checks I think I've seen all season, maybe in a number of seasons, I don't know. But even on watching replays multiple times, uh, it's as clean and as beautiful a thing as ever you'll want to see in the game of hockey. In fact, that's what you want to see in the game of hockey. And for laying that beautiful, clean, open ice body check, what does Simon Motu have to do but drop his gloves and defend himself in a fight? I'm not worried about Simon Motu. He can take care of himself. I just wish we had moved beyond this archaic notion that if you body check my teammate, which is legal in the game, and you do it legally, then you have to fight me. I think that's the dumbest thing we still do in hockey. Oh, 100%. And the funny thing for me, Mike, is everyone seems to get that and say that. I hear it constantly on NHL broadcasts and to the fans I talk to is, why does he have to fight after cleaning it? Why, why, why? So, but the logic doesn't seem to apply to the players on the ice. And yeah, when you look at that Motu hit, first of all, I want to give a kudos to the officiating crew on the ice. 
they weren't roped into a knee-jerk reaction saying, oh, that's a big hit. I got to call it. I got to give this guy a penalty. They saw it for what it was, which was a clean hit, and they did not penalize him for that. So kudos to them. But the fight after, so I hear all these fans almost talking out of both sides of their mouth saying, oh, you know, we don't take him physicality out of the game. You know, we don't let them fight. They've got this three-fight limit and this and that. And you know what's taking physicality out of the game? Making them fight after a clean hit. If you just took that nonsense out of the picture and say, you know what? Hitting's a skill. That guy did it nicely, did it cleanly, timed it properly. Good on him. Maybe their physicality would come back in because how many players out there, they won't admit it, but how many are saying, you know, I'm not going to try and throw that big hit because I'm not really keen on having to fight after. Takes my If, if nothing else, even if I'm not afraid to fight, uh, it's going to take me out of the game for a while. I don't know how the officials are going to call this. I've got my fight limit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that, to me, really limits the physicality because I think players do think twice about trying to throw these hits. And you don't want anyone trying to kill kill each other. But yeah, that's a textbook, classic, beautiful hit, Mike. And if you want those in the game, which I think we all agree we do, stop making these players have to fight after every good hit. And there are ways to deter that through messaging to these players, but also through how you call them. Maybe there's an extra penalty for a player that instigates upon a clean hit or who knows? There's ways to do it. But number one, we have to start with players themselves. Get away from this mentality that you have to drop the gloves and stand up for your teammate. And maybe I know we like to praise players who drop the gloves and stand up for a teammate, but maybe stop praising the ones that do it after a clean hit and just say, you know what? That was dumb. He instigated. He put his team down for a penalty. That was a clean hit. He needs to understand that was a clean hit and move on. I think the messaging just needs to change here, Mike, because it's it's nonsense. We absolutely do want hits like this in the game. And for everyone who's ever complained about how bland hockey has become because we've taken the physicality out of it, look at this. You've summed it up so well, Dan. Look at this as one of the reasons the physicality is disappearing from it. Who wants to have to drop the gloves after a clean play in the game? It's goofy. Oh, totally. It, it's, it's yeah, it's asinine, really. And I think that there's still this legacy old school thinking in hockey, and we'll call it the old school hockey culture, where there's players on the ice that don't even want to fight themselves, but they know I'm, you know, I'm going to earn kudos from the from the media and from my teammates, from my coach if I drop the gloves here. But does anyone stop to think and say, but is this a smart play here? Uh, you're going to put your team down with the instigator penalty right off the bat, and it comes with a ten, so you're taking yourself out of this game for 17 minutes. But really, what you're doing is you're misunderstanding the game, really. You're you're trying to punish someone or, or get revenge on someone for doing something that was well within the rules. That's like why when why don't we start fighting guys for scoring a goal? I mean, it's 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 almost the similar logic. So I just think that we need to change shift that mentality and stop worshiping guys who drop the gloves in those circumstances. Dale Hunter tried that once. He just didn't hear the whistle. Remember? <laughs> uh, if you play this game. Play this clip for your teammates. If you coach this game, play this clip for your players. If you know somebody in the game, tell them to stop looking for fights after clean hits. We beg of you. Absolutely beg of you. Okay, it's time to get to our prospects of the week, Dansky. I have a feeling. I don't know why, but I have a feeling we're going to have the same guy this week. Let's find out who you got. So, you know what, Mike? I I have two. and. I'm worried that I have the same guy as you, so I'm gonna. Uh, I'm gonna. You want to defer? Do the gentleman thing, and I'm gonna let you pick one. So that if you take my guy, I got my backup. So you go ahead. 
All right. I appreciate this. It's how we can all get along within the rules of the podcast. I am going with a guy I have already gone with this season, but what a weekend he had just after my good friends at hockeyprospect.com ranked him 30 seconds. So sneak in to the bottom end of that first round. And what a show Jet Luchenko put on with the Guelph Storm. Two goals and an assist in Sunday's win for Guelph over Oshawa after they got off the schneid, losing to Windsor on the Friday night. Five goals, three assists in his past eight games. He is playing some good hockey, and he, Jet Luchenko, is my prospect of the week. I, I see. I knew it. That was my guy. Like, <laughs> and, and a point of game, and yeah, like, like you just described the weekend he had, so how could he not be? Now, I'll call it a 1A, 1B in my case. So I'm glad that uh, you picked Luchenko because he absolutely deserved it. But I'm not going to go too far off the garden path either, Mike, and and give another shout out again, not the first time, to Luke Misa, who is just having a phenomenal season in Mississauga, well over a point a game. Uh, doesn't get the same headlines as brother Michael does, uh, but he's saying, hey, remember, I was a first-round pick as well, and really a driving engine in that Mississauga Steelheads team, pretty much on the score sheet every game. I had another big week, uh, another impressive week for those Steelheads. Some uh, a few big wins, another five-one win over that that London Knights team. Um, so Luke, Luke Misa was kind of my one B this week, and I think both both he and uh, Luchenko very worthy of it this week, Mike. You know that just makes me think when you take Luke over Michael, who's not draft eligible anyway. But it, did this episode just become the ultimate diss of the Saginaw spirit? I get mixed up from week to week, so I don't. But I don't think when we recorded last week, they had already won their franchise best ten in a row, right? So, okay, Saginaw, we didn't forget. We all noticed it. La da da. Go play in a Memorial Cup. And anyway, I think this might this might go down to the dis episode for the for the Saginaw spirit because of all the teams we talked about, we didn't give them any love at all. Yeah, and it's not intended as a diss, Mike. But maybe next week we can cover disses in general because the Saginaw spirit deserves some airtime. But talking about disses, just before airtime, we heard the uh, the American World Junior Team announced their invites, and neither Hunter Brustevich nor Quentin Musty invited. Ridiculous. Politics, baby. Politics. And I could not agree more. Utterly ridiculous. Okay, uh, we're going to wrap up this episode. And as we do, looking ahead to Friday, our feature interview, this one was so much fun. And, and this guy, look, he's still the hot dog that everybody said he was not only in this league, but beyond he's one of just a small handful of players to score 70 goals in a national hockey league season. Uh, there, he, he had an eight point game. There's one more thing I'm forgetting that he's just in very exclusive company for. Nonetheless, he also just had his, number raised to the rafters in Kingston. I think you already know who this is, but he is our featured guest on Friday. Going to be so much fun. Oh, one of my favorites, Mike. This this pod is going to be like a Broadway show. <laughs> <laughs> that guy over there is Dan Mahar. Find him on Twitter at Dan Mahar. My name is Mike Farwell on Twitter at Farwell underscore OHL. The email address to reach us is ohlpodcast at rogers.com. Please give us a like, subscribe, tell a friend, share this podcast with all of your hockey-loving friends because we're having fun doing it and we want you to have fun listening to it. The uh, 
Broadway show with our featured guest comes out in your next episode of the OHL podcast on Friday. Hi, I'm Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.